This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Hey, listen. Yes. Ain't no heartburn like margarita heartburn. Am I right? Oh. (laughs) You're a 34-year-old When you're 30. (laughs) (laughs) PSA to everyone under 30, you don't recover like you used to. And I'm not talking about the next day. I'm talking about like an hour after happy hour. You're in immediate immense pain. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I feel like we didn't take enough advantage when we were young, Mogap. I definitely didn't. I was so lame. And now I'm out here trying to rage on a Tuesday. (laughs) Dropping bananas on the floor. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Are you eating it sideways? I know. No. <laughs> it's bad. I I took a mental health day yesterday. Oh, good for you. Love it to was see it. so nice. It was so needed. So PSA, if you're crying every day at work for three days, just take a day. <laughs> <laughs> just take a day. Just take a day. It really did help. So we are recording a day later than usual, which is weird because this feels like Monday to me Mm -hmm. now because we always record on Mondays. So it's my first day back at work and we're recording. So I'm like, tomorrow's Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah. And now that everyone knows that you've cried three days in a row, maybe more people will sign up for our Patreon so you can quit your day job. Oh, that's right. We have a Patreon. Mogab, would you like to tell the people what you get if you sign up for our Patreon at the $5 level? Yeah, you improve Kristen's (laughs) mental health. (laughs) Mogab, do you know what you get? I really don't. Because every time you ask me, I I am unclear. But you could tell the people. Did you just catch on that I really don't know? Because every time you ask me, I make something up. Damn it. I've gone so long. (laughs) You get a bonus episode every month. And we either just dropped the bonus episode for October or we're about to drop it. It depends on what the text from my editor says <laughs> that's coming through. And you get a shout out on the podcast. Shout. Super fun. At the $7 level, you get all of that. All of that. Plus, you get a mini-sode about two to three times a month. And those are super fun. And you get a sticker and a, sticker. a card with our autographs. And Mogab Wax seals those puppies. 
I do. Not puppies, the envelopes. I would never, ever wax seal a puppy. Just <laughs> thank you for that. To clarify. People are like, phew. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> they were about to unsubscribe immediately. And at the $10 level, got a $10 level, you get all of that, all, every single thing. Plus, you get 10% off merch. And we will be adding things to that level. Okay, I'll quit eating this banana on mic, but I have a story for you real quick today that happened. Oh, what? Louise. Oh, no. She texted me. I never know what direction I know. these stories are going to go. I know. Same. <laughs> Same. For the new people joining us, Louise is Mogab's mother. Yes. She's a character. By birth. I mean, <laughs> I understand why you might be confused. We are actually related. Also, my mom doesn't know how to text. So let me preface that. Sam. Are you there? <laughs> These are two separate times. <laughs> Sam, are you there? Hello. It's important. Those are four text messages sent from my mom <laughs> all within the same minute. I just sent uh -huh. a question mark back. Sam, mm -hmm. <laughs> I have not been able to find my fine jewelry since I've moved. Of course, my immediate response is, could you please define fine jewelry in <laughs> quotes. Sure. That was going to be my second question as well. Yes. I would bet my life that my mother does not own any fine jewelry. <laughs> Is this the startup of insurance fraud? Is this how it begins? <laughs> I understand why your mind would go there. But Kristen, you seem to be forgetting what season it is. So my mom responds, my rodeo jewelry. <laughs> The audacity. So then I literally responded and I said, excuse me? And she said, yes. There's also that ring that Patsy gave me. And then I said, <laughs> I just responded, please stop thinking that people are stealing your stuff. First your grapefruits and now your fine jewelry. Do you remember the grapefruits from like? I yes. <laughs> so yes, she was going to get a, there was a, so your mom had a grapefruit tree. Yes. In her like yard. And people were, like, picking the grapefruits off the tree. She was convinced that people in the middle of the night were getting on the <laughs> roof of her house to steal grapefruits. <laughs> so convinced, in fact, she got cameras and a shotgun. Okay. So steal them fruits steal? at your was own risk. The, shoot the grapefruit stealer? Uh, yes. I mean, she would I feel attempt. like she's the guy that was uh, going to cut off Aladdin's hand for the bread. Y yes, that's my mom. <laughs> that's live footage of my mom in a market. <laughs> so anyways, if anyone's seen Louise's fine jewelry, please return it before rodeo season is in full swing. I thought rodeo season was in the spring. Sorry, let me clarify. Yes, Houston rodeo season. Pasadena rodeo season, <laughs> oh, oh. which, you know, is Little League, but you got to work your way up. You got to start, you know, start small and then move on up. So I, I wanted to let you know that was my text exchange today. Sam, are you there? <laughs> That's how every single one of my texts is going to start with you. Mo, are you there? <laughs> it's important. <laughs> All right. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Here we go. I'm excited about what you're telling me. I've thought about it all day today, actually. Oh, good. I'm telling you the story of Centoya Brown and the murder of Johnny Allen. (gasps) Okay. Are there children in this? Because I really need a children break. None that are murdered. Okay, great. What a time. What a time. (laughs) But I hate to break it to you. This story I'm telling you today was probably the most difficult story for me to write. False. You said that like two weeks ago. (laughs) It's not because the crime was especially heinous, not any more heinous than normal. I think you'll understand why I I just can't put it into words, but this was a case that I have been working on for like two or three months, and I keep going back to it, and then like I have to take a break, and then I go back to it. Is this the one you sent me a screenshot of like just a blank page? It was like on this date, yes, and that was it. Okay, yes, great. That is this one. First off, a huge thank you to Centoya Brown for sharing her story in her memoir, Free Centoya which was one source I used in this. And I think it's so important to read it and just understand her mindset in this whole thing. So you read a book? I I read a book. I kind of skipped around to a bunch of places. I didn't have time to sit down and read the whole thing. But I skipped around to places where I really wanted to just hear it from her words, in her words. And since it is obviously her story in her words, I also tried to find articles showing the other side just to give as complete a picture of this situation as I could. However, you know, just a disclaimer that Centoya in this story is really the only person who knows what happened. And I am choosing to believe her story and how she told it. So if you want a truly unbiased version of this story, you might want to look elsewhere. All I'm saying. Because we coming in with our opinions. (laughs) That's what that sounded like. Yeah. (laughs) Me, never. And this is a hard, I mean, this is a hard one to like, but ugh. All right, let's just get into it. On August 6th, 2004, Centoya Brown was standing in the parking area of a Sonic drive-in looking for a ride to East Nashville. 
She was 16 years old, and she had walked to the Sonic from the in-town suites up the road, where she had been staying for a few days with her 24-year-old boyfriend, Garion, who went by the really classy name Cutthroat. Oh, I love that. And that is cut with a K. Oh, of course. Of course. Centoya thought she was in love. She was building a future with him in her head the way teenage girls do. She didn't realize at the time that Cut was actually her pimp, who only ever referred to her as bitch and wanted her to have sex with men for money to give to him so he could start a business selling drugs. No one had ever talked to Centoya about what a healthy relationship looks like, and she thought Cut loved her. Earlier that day at the motel, he'd beaten her, pointed a gun at her, choked her, kicked her, and then told her that it was time for her to go out and bring him back some money and earn her keep. Mm, Centoya, run. This was after weeks of pimping her out to everyone from friends of his to the pizza delivery guy. (gasps) She's 16. She is 16. This is the worst story you've ever told me. Why am I here? Of instituting a no-clothes rule in the room for her, and of acting increasingly erratic and unhinged. She said, quote, The slightest word from me would send him into a rage that ended in him dragging me around by my hair. Ugh. And I tell you this because this is the lens that Sintoya is viewing the world from. She'd been through so much trauma already that she says she felt detached from her body, like she was on autopilot. She knew of an area in East Nashville. They were like right outside Nashville. She knew of this area in East Nashville that was popular with sex workers, and she decided she'd try and get a ride out there. So she grabbed Cut's gun and stuck it in her purse, something she always did when she'd go pick up men. Oh, she was like going there to work, not to like run away. Oh. Yes, so that she could go and get money and bring it back to him so he could start a business selling drugs. Sintoya had other options. Her birth mom, Georgina, who went by Gina, she'd gotten pregnant at 16 and she hadn't had a stable home. She'd been the product of rape and her mom had had a lot of mental health problems. She'd started trafficking Gina around the neighborhood for 20 bucks each time. (gasps) Her mom kept alcohol in the house, and Gina would drink a bottle before school and go to school drunk. She drank the entire time she was pregnant and continued drinking after Centoya was born. Wait. And- Sorry. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Gina's mom would pimp her out? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, boy. Before Gina was pregnant. Yeah. When Centoya was eight months old, Gina's drinking turned to cocaine, which turned to sex work to pay for the drugs and the alcohol. But Gina gave Centoya up for adoption when she was two years old, and she was adopted by a woman named Elinette Brown, who truly loved Centoya. But Centoya just couldn't seem to stop making bad choices. She was kicked out of school at 12 years old and put in an alternative school. She ran away, afraid to tell Elinette that she'd been kicked out. And from that point on, there were constant behavior problems with Centoya. How do you kick a kid out of school and their parent slash guardian doesn't know? You know it was I mean? like an alternative school. And I know, I, but yeah. Like, you're 12. You're getting someone's getting a phone call. Yeah. Probably she already knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she probably already gotten that phone call and maybe she just didn't want to face her. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to stay at home because she wanted to drink and smoke and get high, which is how she ended up staying at that motel room with Cut. But part of her was thinking while she was walking to that Sonic, knowing that she needed to bring back some money, that she didn't. She could go home to her mom and she could have a good life again. 
but she didn't. While waiting at the Sonic, some reports said that she stopped a Ford truck and told the driver that one of his headlights was out. In her book, she says that the man in the truck approached her in his white F-150, rolled his window down, and asked if she needed a ride. The driver was a 43-year-old man named Johnny Allen, and once she was in his truck, he got her some food at Sonic, and while they waited for the order, they made small talk. She told him a little about Cut and how he'd kicked her out of the motel, and she didn't know where to go from there. He asked her if she was up for any action. And she knew he meant something sexual, but she needed the money, so she said okay. And they decided on $150, and they went back to his house. Oh, God. I just, oh. I know. Centoya had suggested they go back to the motel she'd been at with Cut, but he wanted to go to his house because there was no one there. Yeah, why would he? He said he lived by himself. On the drive, Johnny talked a lot about himself. He told her that he was a real estate agent and he did a lot of volunteer work. He was a youth minister, <gasps> and Centoya said he made it very clear that he was really important to the community. He told her he used to be a sharpshooter in the army, and at the house he showed her several guns he owned while Centoya sat at the table to eat her Sonic. He told her a lot of women wanted him for his money, but he wanted someone to make love with him with desire. She said that he was very controlling and started reminding her of Cut, and she started getting very nervous. And I kind of feel she had a little PTSD going on here. And her brain, in my opinion, was purely in survival mode at this point. She said she'd always used hotels in the past. She'd never gone to someone's home before. And I think that that made her scared. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And she decided she didn't want to have sex with him anymore, and she didn't know how to get out of the situation. She asked him if they could go downstairs to the living room to watch TV. She wanted to be closer to the door. And so she told him that she hadn't been able to sleep in a really long time, and she hoped they could both just go to sleep and she'd be able to sneak out while he was sleeping. But when she said that, he decided to take her upstairs. And she's a very nervous person, and the way that he was acting made her very nervous. He kept telling her how important he is and what a leader in the community he is, and she just kept thinking about how she's nothing to him. And she started wondering what she could do if he grabbed one of the many guns that he'd been showing her. Yeah. She's in his house. No one knows where she is. Cut doesn't even know who she left with. And she's thinking he probably doesn't even care. Right. And the more he talked about his gun, the more shaky she got. I'm shaky. Yeah. They went into his bedroom and they got into bed and Centoya was scared. She said at first that he was stroking her gently, whispering to her, but she just tried to pretend like she was asleep. Then he grabbed her really hard in the vagina, and she fought him back, but he gave her a look, and she said it was a very fierce look that terrified her. She said it sent chills up her spine. She thought he was about to hit her, but then he rolled over and reached over the side of the bed, or she thought he did. And she was certain that he was going to grab a gun. And in her mind, he wasn't going to hit her. He was going to shoot her. Right. Ugh. And before he could turn back, she grabbed the gun out of her purse on the nightstand <gasps> and shot him in the head. <gasps> oh, shit. What if he was, like, grabbing a condom? Do we know? I mean, I don't know. I don't think that he was grabbing a gun at all. I don't think that he was going to hurt her. I do think that she so 100% believed that he was. Yeah, yeah. And for the record, Johnny's family has said and friends have said that they think that he was just trying to help her out and that none of this ever happened. 
But when they found his body in bed, he was naked in the bed. So mm-hmm. I think maybe that's them telling themselves things that they want to believe. Mm-hmm. I think he was a predator, but I I don't think that he was probably going to hurt her. We'll never really know. No, we won't. She's the only one that knows. And this is her story. But I believe her. I believe that she was in that headspace. I believe that she really thought that. Well, and I could see why this would feel totally different. You're in someone's home. This isn't maybe like the typical person that she had these encounters with, it sounds like. And I wouldn't have thought of this until you said he keeps talking about how important he is. And she's like, wow, it literally would, one, be nothing for him to like get rid of me. And two, people would believe him because he's this person in the community and I'm literally no one. Like, I could see all that, like, happening. Yeah. And then add to that the fact that she is 16 years old and has, like, lived this life, you know. And she didn't know what to do. But she knew that Cut would. And she knew she couldn't go back empty-handed. So she grabbed some money and valuables. She also stole Johnny's shotgun and rifle. And she then grabbed the keys to his truck and drove the truck to the motel. She got to the motel around 2 a.m. and Cutthroat was waiting for her. He didn't believe her at first that she'd killed someone, but then he saw a bullet was missing from the gun. He told her that she shouldn't have brought the truck there and that she'd have to dump it somewhere, and he told her to take it to the Walmart and wipe it down for prints. While she was there, the fact that she might have just killed someone reverberated in her mind. She couldn't process the thought that he was actually dead, and she wanted to make sure that he was okay. She was thinking... That he had to be okay. Right. And she found an old phone book in his truck and she flipped through it until she found his home number. And she called and waited for someone to pick up, but no one did. I'm sorry for everyone that's listening that has no idea what a phone book is. It was literally a book (laughs) where they printed. Did they have your address in it? It did. Your phone number Uh and your address. (gasps) Yes. Oh my gosh. What a wild time. Do they still do those? Ugh. I think they do. I mean, it was just 2004. Remember you would like walk up to your front porch and be like in a baggie? Yes. (laughs) That's how we would prank call people too. Okay, sorry. Yes. By the time she got back to the motel, the news had already reported the story about a man found shot in his bed. Oh, oh. The next morning, police managed to track Centoya to the motel room. Cut was furious that she'd brought the cops to his door and he told her not to let them know that she was 16. He told her to tell them that she was 19. The only thing on her mind was protecting Cut and keeping him out of all of this. That's truly too much for me. I know. They were both arrested and put into separate interview rooms. In the room with Centoya was Officer Robinson, who she says told her that whether or not she talked with them could mean the difference between nine years and 99 years. Centoya truly believed that she had acted in self-defense and hadn't done anything wrong, but she also didn't want to go to prison, so she agreed to talk with them. Robinson read her her Miranda rights, but she didn't think that she had the right not to speak to the police, especially when they just told her that she could get 99 years for not speaking with them. And studies have shown that 90% of juveniles arrested in the U.S. do not understand their Miranda rights. I was just about to say, like, do they they even know what that is? Like, if you're not watching whatever CSI and you've never been arrested before, you don't know what's happening. No, and they speak to police without a parent or attorney present. Centoya said she had no idea she had the option to be silent. 
And the language they use, it's like you have the right to remain silent. You are entitled to consult with an attorney before interrogation. Like, why can't they just say, you don't have to speak with us? You have the option to speak to a lawyer before you speak with us. I mean, it's almost like they word it that way in the hopes that people won't understand what it means. Yeah, probably. She was high and she was tired. And she said the cops told her that if she talked with them, they'd get her a deal about time. They told her nine times out of 10, you'll get life and made her believe that she would get less time. And you can see at the beginning of the tape when they're talking, she said, well, you did promise me something. And then the cop said, oh, we didn't promise anything. We just said we'd talk to the DA. But in her view, that meant they would talk to the DA and get her a better deal. Mm -hmm. And she was also being interrogated by two very large men, and she's a very small teenage girl. She told them everything that had happened that night, but through the lens of distancing, cut as much as possible. She told them she was 19, that she'd just met Cut in the parking lot, and that she'd never been a prostitute. Ugh, when why o- is she trying to save him? Uh, I mean, I know why, but like, why? I know. When Officer Robinson finally discovered that she was only 16, he was furious that she'd lied to him. That's my favorite part, too. I feel like that happens often. I'm like, they're going to find out who you truly are. Like when people give like a fake name or... A fake age. Right. Like, how did Cutthroat think that they were going to get by with, like, never checking her age? Yeah. Also, what's his real name? Gary and something or other. Gary. <laughs> Gary. Centoya was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, <sighs> first-degree felony murder, and aggravated robbery, and the state wanted to treat her as an adult. Staying in juvenile court meant that she would have received the services that she needed that would be identified by doctors after psychological testing. In the U.S., all 50 states have laws that allow juveniles to be transferred to the adult system for serious offenses. But of all the states, Tennessee has the harshest mandatory minimum life sentences for juveniles once transferred. Really? So we've talked about how the average life sentence is actually 15 years, Mm -hmm. usually. In Tennessee, flip it. You don't get parole until you've served 51 years. Oh, my gosh. That's a mandatory minimum if you're found guilty. Hey, listen, everyone that talks shit about Texas, you hear that? <laughs> I mean, you can continue to talk shit <laughs> yeah, about Texas. Yeah, I mean, honestly, listen. And we saw with the Marissa Alexander case where she was sentenced to 20 years for firing a warning shot, that mandatory minimums are not the right answer when we're looking to fix all these issues with bad sentencing. Marissa Alexander literally shot a ceiling and got 20 right. years. 20 years. Yeah. In Tennessee, juveniles can be transferred on any charge if they're 16 or older, but there have been kids as young as 12 <sighs> transferred on homicide charges. The difference is, generally speaking, most kids that commit murder are not cold blooded killers. I'm not saying none are, okay? I know Daniel LaPlante exists and that haunts me. If you haven't listened to our episode on Daniel LaPlante, he was a teenager when he killed a mom and her two kids in their home, basically for fun. Okay. But Centoya Brown is not a Daniel LaPlante. But 12 years old, like, I'm trying to think if I even had kissed a boy at 12. I mean, like, <laughs> The people maybe. committing murder at 12 are living much, much different lives than yeah, you and I lived I as mean- children. <laughs> yeah, everyone, you hear that? So take that to the Facebook discussion group. I'm not a drug dealer. <laughs> But, yeah, I don't know. This is not happening in the suburbs, usually. So young. I just... Yeah. There was a hearing to determine if she would go to adult court or stay in juvenile. 
And Centoya's public defender was Kathy Sinback. And right from the get-go, Centoya really liked her. Every time she called, Kathy was there for her. And anytime she had a question, Kathy answered it. And slowly, Kathy was able to point out all the things that Centoya had accepted were normal and just how not normal they were. They talked often and met every other day to prepare for her transfer hearing. They spent hours preparing, especially training Centoya to resist the urge to yell when somebody lied on the stand or when she perceived somebody to be lying on the stand. Hey, we talked about that. That was hard. <laughs> I would need that. I know. Yes. I feel like I thought of you. <laughs> Say less, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I feel like that's a lot of like dedicated time and effort and support that you don't typically see happening. From a public defender. Yeah. We didn't even see this happening from Adnan's like crazy expensive attorney. Right. She wasn't meeting with him every other day, you know? Right. He had very little access to her. And I don't know if that's just a Maryland versus Tennessee difference, a juvenile court versus he was put into adult jail. Yeah, we don't know because we still don't have some law student and or <laughs> Attorney in our DMs, which, like, what are y'all waiting for? I know. I'm about to go to law school. <laughs> Honestly, I'm surprised. It not take any longer. <laughs> I know. I'm surprised no one's, like, really been fed up enough with how wrong we're getting something that they've <laughs> corrected us. I mean, really. So the prosecution story was that she killed Johnny Allen so that she could rob him. And they say, we will never actually know what happened in Centoya's case because the only person who truly knows is Centoya herself. But they said the fact that she took his wallet, his guns, and his truck would cast doubt on her motive of self-defense. They never once questioned the fact that a 43-year-old man was picking up a teenager for sex. She was described constantly as a teenage prostitute, which, by the way, is not a thing. That doesn't exist. But this was 2004. Today, a teenage sex worker would be called a victim of child sex trafficking. Yes, louder for those in the back. <laughs> but in 2004, she was a murderous, evil, out-of-control teenage prostitute, and the state wanted her locked up. Even with all of that, though, it's like you're leaving out some of the, like, logistical pieces. Like, she needed to get out of there, and she didn't have another means of transportation. So, like, she took the car. You know, like, right. I mean, I understand she robbed him because her other option was to go back empty-handed and then also get beat up by the pimp. Right. Basically. Who she thought was her only help at that point. Like, she needed somebody to help her. Right. And she thought he would know what to do, but she couldn't go to him with no money. He'd already, like, strangled her, choked her, kicked her, beat her, hit her. Yeah, she had nowhere else to go. You know, and told her that she needed to go out and earn her keep. Well, we see how much he helped her because he basically was like, why – about your age and don't bring me up, basically. Right. I mean, obviously all protecting him. He didn't give a crap about her. At the hearing, Centoya wore her hair in pigtail braids, and she just looked so young. I mean, she was so young. I'm looking her up. Uh, let me see if I can find a picture from this hearing. Like, look at <laughs> – this was her at the transfer hearing, Mogab. Let me send this to you. <gasps> oh, my God. This is, like, worse than I thought. I know, because you picture 16-year-olds, like, how they look in the movies, and they don't look like that. They look like little kids. Well, because I just looked her up here, and she's, like, this beautiful, like, woman. 
you know, on her Wikipedia page. And I'm like, yeah, this looks like. Right. So it was heartbreaking to look at her little child face and think about everything that she'd been through. Like, I can't get over the fact that. That picture is going to haunt me. Gary, her 24-year-old boyfriend, had a no-clothes rule for her in that motel room. And he could look at that little girl and do that to her. She saw Johnny Allen's family in the courtroom glaring at her, his fiance and his brother. And it was the first time that she realized that her actions went far beyond the man that she thought was trying to hurt her. And she said she'd only been thinking about protecting herself and she hadn't considered what his family had gone through. Which, like, of course, I mean, that is really sad. And I obviously... I don't know how I feel, but I, of course, she didn't think about that. Like, I know. I know it's tough because I also don't believe that this person deserved to die, you know, but I also. I have like beef with him. Like, yeah, I don't know. The judge closed the hearing by saying that the case was a tragedy on both sides. Centoya thought that that meant the judge would show her mercy. She really didn't think the judge would transfer her to adult court considering that the situation that she'd been in. But two weeks after the hearing, the judge announced his decision. Centoya would be tried as an Mm. adult. Mm. If this happened today, we know so much more about sex trafficking. This would never happen. I choose to believe. (laughs) (laughs) But I think a lot of that also is owed to Centoya and her story, because I think it has shown us a lot of the what not to do's in the criminal justice system. And that's just my layman, not an attorney opinion. You're about to be, though. (laughs) Yeah, nobody steps up. (laughs) Centoya was transferred to adult jail, and she said she could feel the difference immediately. Her hands and feet were shackled, and she had to carry her own trash bag full of her property. Since she was a juvenile in adult jail, they had to follow certain rules, including segregating her from the adult inmates until she turned 18. Well, thank goodness. God. Yeah. The medical staff at the jail had her on psychotropics, but they changed her prescription constantly. She said at one point she was on three different medications all at once, and she felt so doped up that she could barely function. Which, honestly, if I'm in prison, that's the only way I'm trying to do it. (laughs) I mean, fair. Her attorney, Kathy, set Centoya up with her discovery packet, which included every piece of evidence from the transfer hearing. And, I mean, big thumbs up for Kathy. Gave her an LSAT prep book to help her better understand the case law. Oh, my MVP award. I need to name this award. I need to like make a real name for it. I give it out every episode. I should probably wait. But Uh, Kathy, here's to you. Centoya didn't do great in jail. She was prone to explosions of rage and daily outbursts and fights with the guards. And then she heard that three girls that used to have a cell next to her were telling detectives that Centoya had told them everything about the murder the first night she was in jail. Centoya told Kathy she hadn't told anybody anything, and Kathy knew she was telling the truth, but she said that because two of the girls were being represented by the public defender's office, that Kathy couldn't represent both of them, and it meant that she wouldn't be Centoya's attorney anymore. (gasps) Kathy, I am stripping you of the award. (laughs) <laughs> why Why would she pick? I don't think it was her choice. I don't think she, like, chose them. Also, why does that always happen where – because I guess they try and get their sentence lessened by turning over information. Mm-hmm. This keeps happening where people say they know – Oh, they've heard it is stuff. a huge – jailhouse informants are a 
huge problem. I can't remember where it was. It was probably on Truth and Justice that I heard this. But they said that, and I think it was somebody from the Innocence Project that said that they were putting up flyers in the jails. Like, if you have any information about this crime, let your guy. Yes. This isn't like a have you seen my lost kitten. (laughs) Why are we basically a get out of jail free card? Yeah. Like, oh, I can get, I know that if I testify and I lie about this, so all I have to do is get the bare minimum amount of information, come up with some story. And tell it, and then I can get a deal. And what a waste of everyone's time. Like, and resources. Not the DAs, not when you put, yeah. Yeah. As devastated as she was at the news that Kathy wouldn't be her attorney anymore, her mood flipped when she found out who would be representing her. It was a lawyer named Rich McGee that everyone in jail knew as the lawyer who could get juries to find anyone innocent. She said she had wished so many times that she had Rich McGee as her attorney and she couldn't believe her luck. Wendy Tucker would represent her along with McGee. One of the first things McGee told Centoya was that she would not be testifying at her trial. And Centoya did not like that one bit. Her entire case revolved around self-defense and she didn't understand who else could tell her story if she didn't testify. Yeah, like there's no other witnesses. Right. But McGee and Tucker had a strategy. They wanted to show the jury that she did not premeditate the crime, which meant that she wouldn't fit the criteria for first-degree murder. They asked a doctor to evaluate Centoya before they continued so that they could also show her mental state at the time. They also went over her waiving her Miranda rights to determine if she knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived her rights. And they discovered that she had no idea what any of it meant when she agreed to it. She didn't understand that she didn't have to talk to police, and she didn't understand that she could ask for a lawyer. And in Tennessee, police can question minors without a parent present. Uh, Another one of these? Yeah. It's more common than I thought. And it's just like, she also doesn't know that. That's the other thing. It's like, even if that is or isn't a law, Mm -hmm. like, she doesn't know that. I don't know that. Like, I don't know. It's just, ugh. Right. And I think she was just so focused on making sure that, you know, Gary didn't get in trouble. That Yeah, like, oof, woof. I can't wait for an update on his ass. He's dead. Oh. He got oh, shot God. in a parking lot. <laughs> That's not in the script, but I happen to know that. So <laughs> there you go. He died. Her try- Not that I'm, like, you know, celebrating that either. I just don't care about him. Her trial started on August 21st, 2006, and lasted four days. By this time, Centoya was 18, she'd been in jail for two years, and she was terrified that she would be found guilty. She spent a lot of time fantasizing about getting out, daydreaming about it. She said she couldn't help it. Yeah, what else do you got to do? 18-year-old Centoya was a lot more mature than 16-year-old Centoya. At 16, Centoya was reckless and angry. And at 18, she understood that your impression on people and what they think of you matters. Judge J. Randall Wyatt presided over her trial, and Jeff Burks was the prosecutor. Burks told the jury that Johnny Allen was a prominent real estate agent and that Centoya Brown shot him in his bed in his home and then gave some wild story about his self-defense. How did she get there then? Like, you know? And how did he get naked? I mean, nobody brought that up. He painted her as a murderous whore. Those are Centoya's words. 
and told the jury that she was dangerous and that the streets were safer without her. Mm. They had the medical examiner, Amy McMaster, testify that when Johnny Allen was found, his fingers were kind of intertwined. He was like on his side with his hands clasped, showing that he must have been asleep and in that position when he was shot. They said that Centoya had cruelly and mercilessly executed Johnny Allen, and the wound would have been immediately fatal. And again, just for the record, when they found his body, his fingers were intertwined, but he was also naked, a 43-year-old man, naked in bed with a 16-year-old, but we're going to paint the 16-year-old as cruel and merciless. Like, should she have shot him? No, of course not. Was she cruel? Also no, in my opinion. She was traumatized. She was a victim of child sex trafficking. Like, give me a break. Give me a break. Give me a break. The defense gave their opening statements. They said that Centoya was a 16-year-old runaway living on the streets with her 24-year-old boyfriend, Cutthroat. She'd been beaten, pimped out, and raped. And when she felt that Johnny Allen moved, she was sure he was going to get a gun, rape her, kill her, something. And she was sure that she had to make a choice to save herself. Charles Robinson, the detective that questioned Centoya, he testified about speaking to her very briefly before turning on the camera. And he said he just told her that they were going to talk and that they would tell the DA that she cooperated and that they usually take that into consideration. Because remember, Centoya said that they told her that speaking with them would be the difference between nine Nine years years and and 99 years. Yeah, yeah. And she took that as them making a deal with her for a lower sentence if she spoke with them. And she said so in the video, in the interrogation. And this wasn't like something she came up with later. Like you can hear her say that in the Yeah, you, like they say, just sign this paper. It says blah, 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 blah. And it says that we haven't made any prom- – we haven't promised you anything. And she said, wait a second. You did promise me something. You promised me a deal. And they said, no, we just said we'd talk to the DA for you. And she said, yeah, about less time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not about like what they're having for dinner. Like, right, right, what you right. What you talking about? Literally, what else would you be talking to the DA about? This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, PROS proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. PROS is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. 
Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Her mother, Elinette Brown, testified that she spoke with Centoya almost daily. And every single time they spoke about the shooting, Centoya told her that she was in fear of Johnny when she shot him. Once, she told Elinette that she executed him. Elinette had been telling her that she wanted Centoya to have some kind of life. And finally, Centoya broke down, telling her she wasn't ever going to have any kind of adult life. And she said, you don't understand what I did, Mama. I killed a man. I executed him. Is she using that word, too? Because, like, that's what she's been told she's done. Like, she's hearing that, like, the word execute. Like, she's saying that because that's what she's hearing. That's totally possible. I don't know. That's what I think. She kind of says why, but the prosecution locked in on that word she used one time and how that was her telling a different story than what she'd always said. They tried to get Elinette on the stand to say that that was Centoya confessing to killing an innocent man in cold blood. But Elinette said that wasn't it at all. That was Centoya telling her not to waste any more time on her, to basically give up on her. And to me, it just shows remorse for what she did, not a confession. Also, why would they think that she was going to take the stand and say that that was her confession? This was her on the stand. They're talking to her on the stand, trying to get her to say that. Right, but like, why would they think that she would? Well, you know how they can badger you and just try to ask you questions and trip you up and try to get you to say something that, you know, maybe you don't really mean or like. Right. You know, and she was like, no, she like didn't say that. Centoya listened as expert after expert, even the experts on her side, testified that there was something wrong with her, that she was damaged, broken beyond repair. Every mistake she'd ever made was brought up as evidence of this. Dr. Burnett, who had done the evaluations on her for the defense, testified that she had borderline personality disorder. In her memoir, she talks about a particularly disturbing part of the trial. She said that her attorney, McGee, showed the jury part of a folded up picture that Cut had taken of her when they were staying at the motel, and he asked the jury to look at her eyes and see the sorrow in them. And Centoya said that when it was the DA's turn, Jeff Burks snatched the picture, went right up to the jury, and she said that he had a big smirk on his face while he said, here's the rest of the picture. And he unfolded the picture for the jury to reveal that she was naked in it. And she said that he looked smug, like he was clearly enjoying himself. And this just skeeves me out so badly for so many reasons. Like, first of all, she's 16 in that picture. 
Cool. So he's basically distributing child pornography to the jury without a second thought. And second, just the reasons that that picture was taken by Cut and how she must have been feeling when it was taken. Like, of course there's sorrow in her eyes. Like, she's a shell of a child. Yeah. Like, of course. And how showing the jury that just must have made her feel so violated all over again. I would have yelled out right then, despite everything Kathy taught me. (laughs) I know. No, I think she just was so humiliated. I mean, so humiliated. Yeah, of course. In closing, the prosecution said that Centoya was counting on the jury to drop the common sense they'd always had by asking them to look at the picture of Johnny Allen and believe that it was self-defense when she'd shot him in the back of the head while his hands were clasped together. They repeated the words that she used to Elinette about executing him and said that what she said in that phone call was exactly what she had done. The defense's closing argument pointed out that Johnny was a 43-year-old man driving around on a Friday night picking up young girls. Girls so young that a waitress at the Sonic said she thought Centoya was his daughter or his niece. They said that Centoya Brown was not an angel. She was a 16-year-old runaway doing the best that she could. On August 6, 2004, she thought she'd have a night where she was safe. And he told the jury that it was not her intent to kill him when she went to the house which is what you need for first-degree murder. The jury deliberated for six hours before reaching a verdict. They found her guilty Mm. on all charges, first-degree murder, felony murder, and especially aggravated robbery. First-degree murder? The only Mm -hmm. one that I think would be aggravated robbery. Mm -hmm. First-degree murder? She didn't plan it. No, I I could have seen second-degree murder, and I could have seen aggravated robbery, but not first-degree. She was automatically sentenced to serve a life sentence, which means she'd have to serve 51 years before being eligible for parole. It would start at 16 because that's when she was, you know, in jail. She'd get those two years, you know. Whoa. And in her book, Centoya made an interesting point about jury selection, one that I'd never really thought about being, you know, a white woman. We're supposed to get a jury of our peers. But it never works out like that. You know, juries have come a long way from the all-white, all-male juries decades ago. But there's still a lot of work to be had because what Centoya said was that none of them understood her. None of them understood what she'd been through or the experiences that she'd overcome. Mm -hmm. None of them ran in the same social circles that she did. And that the whole thing just seemed rigged against her from the start. Well, and had someone, wouldn't that person be disqualified. I feel like there's often times where it's like, oh, you also were a sex worker previously or you also had an abusive relationship, like you cannot serve in this capacity. I think if you say that, you can, but both sides have so many cards that they can draw. They have so yeah. many like they don't have to give a reason, they can just cut you. Mm-hmm. And obviously the prosecution is going to cut anyone that comes right. in that could sympathize with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or empathize. In July of 2010, Centoya was 22 years old. She said her 22nd birthday was really hard for her. She thought she should have been graduating college, but she couldn't since she was in prison. She was going to college in prison, though, through mm-hmm. Lipscomb University, who would come out once a week and allow them to get an associate's degree. And anyone out there saying, oh, I can just go murder someone to get free college, shut up. Hey. Also, LOL, a year ago, that was me. (laughs) Oh, I know. Uh Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know if I still, I don't know. You know, the, you know my like case by case basis feelings on things. <laughs> well, you know my feelings on it, which is that anything that can get somebody yeah. out of prison that would make them a like mm-hmm. member of society, like a contributing member of society and right. not someone that has to like go and sell drugs again when they get out and they have options. That's just better for everybody. Right. You might not see it as fair. Like right. you have to pay for it and they didn't. But I feel like they paid for it. They yeah. paid for it and their crimes. They just at the same time. Answer for your crimes and your education. And it's not handed to you. You yeah, still yeah. work for it. You know, I mean, you still have to earn it. It's just funny because I totally agree now. I'm like, yeah, why would I want this person to – like if this person could enter back into society as a drug dealer – Or they could enter back into society with an associate's degree and maybe go work somewhere. Why would I not want that option? But I obviously did not have all of these. You know, when you know more, you do better. And that's where I'm at now. Okay, I I totally agree. I totally agree. And also, they're still a felon when they get out. I mean, they've still got, like, things stacked against them. So they're not able to vote. This, like, you know, Yeah. She'd been incarcerated for nearly six years when she got some relatively good news. She was getting a new legal team who'd agreed to take on her case pro bono. A documentary had come out about her called Me Facing Life, Sintoya's Story. And an attorney named Charles Bone had gotten a call from a colleague telling him to go see it at a nearby theater. And he did. And he said that he could see that she just didn't get a fair shake and that there was more to this story than the courts knew at the time. He was told about Gina's alcohol abuse while she was pregnant with Centoya, and he just thought, here's a kid who didn't have a chance from the moment she was born, and that's affected her through her entire life. And he thought this case could make a difference for thousands of kids who were born in situations that they couldn't control. He went right to work on a second appeal to have her sentence overturned. She'd already had one appeal that had basically tried to throw every argument it could at the courts, but it had been denied. Only two-thirds of criminal appeals filed in state courts are even reviewed, which I didn't know. I thought they reviewed all of them. Yeah, like what happened to But only two-thirds. They don't even get reviewed. Denied. And of those, of those two-thirds that are reviewed, 81% of them are denied. Hmm. This second appeal would focus on new evidence that she had a cognitive impairment. He got experts on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder to evaluate Centoya, and they intended to show the court that her sentence is the functional equivalent of a life sentence without parole, and they wanted to present new evidence that she had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and how that affected her case. So I want to take a second to talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, There were actually a lot of misconceptions I had about it before I learned about this case. And all of this information I got from cdc.gov, and I'll link it in the show notes. But FASD is an alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. It's caused by drinking during pregnancy, and any amount of drinking at any time of the pregnancy can result in FASD. The brain is the organ most affected by alcohol during pregnancy. And we know that Centoya's birth mother, Gina, drank heavily throughout her entire pregnancy. She admitted to the documentarian that she drank a fifth of vodka every day while she was <gasps> pregnant with Centoya. What? Yeah. How is that possible? A fifth of vodka every day. 
I was only ever aware of fetal alcohol syndrome, which is the most severe disorder on the spectrum. And I always thought that you could just tell if a person had it by looking at them Mm -hmm. because one of the birth defects associated with FASD is abnormal facial features. And that's really one of the few things I knew about the disorder, but that's not true. There are many side effects of FASD that you can't see. Again, I'll link all this information, but I'm going to focus on the side effects that may have particularly. (laughs) Mogab will link all this information, (laughs) but I'm going to focus on the side effects that may have particularly affected Centoya. FASD can cause hyperactive behavior, difficulty with attention, poor memory, difficulty in school, intellectual disabilities, and poor reasoning and judgment skills, Mm -hmm. of which she obviously had. On June 20th, 2011, Centoya was diagnosed with FASD, and her lawyers felt like this could explain why she did what she did, and they presented it at an appeals hearing on November 13th and 14th of 2012. At this point, Centoya was 24 years old, and she'd spent eight years in jail. Hmm. At the trial, the focus was on this new diagnosis of FASD, as well as the harshness of her sentence, considering that she was a minor at the time, and to bring up instances of ineffective assistance of counsel, all of which they hoped would show that Centoya deserved a new trial. To Charles Bone, her new attorney, Centoya's trial had been fundamentally unfair. But the real question would be if the courts could be convinced. Jeff Burks was once again the prosecutor on the case, and he asked the courts to look closely at the reliability of FASD and if it would have been allowed in the trial in the first place. Wendy Tucker, Centoya's lawyer from that first trial, she was called to the stand to testify since one thing they were going after was ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh I think because she'd never brought up the FASD issue. She said she'd heard of the disorder, but she'd never presented a defense using it, and that she had not sought the assistance of any medical experts on FASD. I don't necessarily blame her for that. I don't know that that's where I No, I don't either. Yeah, I don't either. I think that they are reaching a little bit with ineffective assistance. Yeah. She said the doctor who evaluated Centoya, Dr. Burnett, had never mentioned it to her, but if a medical expert had mentioned it to her, she would have looked into it, which sounds reasonable to me. Right. Experts testified about Centoya's FASD. They said that she was seriously impaired, and if you look at her cognitive testing alone, there was a serious discrepancy between her tested IQ and her other abilities. She has a remarkable IQ, 134, but she doesn't function the way a person with such a high intelligence would usually function. For one thing, she had remarkably higher rates of problems with the law. But she was suffering from FASD when she committed those crimes. When she sees chaos, she doesn't know how to respond to it appropriately. They said her functional abilities are so terrible, they're equivalent to someone with a mild intellectual disability. They used the R word at court. Oh, no. Listen, that, everybody, that word's canceled. Okay. Yes, canceled. And Centoya didn't know there would be three doctors describing in detail how mentally impaired she was, or that multiple doctors would basically be calling her the R word on the stand. And this is like 2010. I mean, come on, that was canceled before then. I feel like it was. I feel like it's been canceled basically my whole life. Yeah. She listened as they testified how she even had the physical features of the disorder. And this was the first time Centoya had heard 
all of this, especially about the discrepancy between her IQ and her behavior, and alarm bells just started going off for her. She thought about the stealing, the sexual behavior, the screaming rages, and she started to become hopeful that this was an explanation. Mm -hmm. The doctor said that people with FASD don't reach their full cognitive potential until their early 30s. Oh, she's not even there yet. No. And suddenly, Centoya was seeing her life from a completely different perspective, one where every choice she'd ever made was because there was something horribly wrong with her, and she couldn't do anything about it except wait it out for another seven years. (laughs) She'd always gotten the majority of her self-esteem from her intelligence. She says in her book that that's what gave her value and made her feel like a worthwhile person. But now she's being told she has an intellectual disability. Yeah. But that she had a high IQ, you know? Yeah. So it's like, I could see where you would be like, wait a second. Right. I'm like, wait a second. My mom, who's like able to pass like nursing shit and but has like no common sense and can make no wise decision. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Let's look into this. Side note. Burks, the prosecutor, rebutted all of this, saying that her mother was serving time in jail and she could have been lying. And that what all of these doctors and scientists were saying is that basically Centoya should get a free pass for her bad behavior, which for the record is not what I am saying at all. I don't think that this is a free pass. I think that this might mean we need to look at first degree murder and a 51 year sentence. Yeah. The judge said he'd make a decision within several weeks. And when he finally came back, he acknowledged that Centoya did have FASD and they proved that she could not control her impulses. But for post-conviction relief, which is what they were seeking, they had to show that a reasonable jury would have voted differently if they'd had that information. And the judge didn't think that was the case. He denied the relief. Which I kind of agree with, too. Not that he should have denied it, but I don't know that a jury would have gone differently. Yeah, been persuaded by that information. Yeah. Yeah. Centoya was interviewed again in December of 2016. At this point, she'd been incarcerated for 12 years and she was 28 years old. She'd gotten her degree from Lipscomb, and she was trying to maintain positive, healthy relationships with positive, healthy people. Not an easy task to do in prison. (laughs) I'm sure it's slim pickings. Yeah. She said prison life is not a life, so you have to carve it out for yourself. And she desperately wanted to have a life outside of prison. The next year, in November of 2017, a law passed that had been inspired by Centoya's case. The law said that minors can no longer be charged with prostitution. And all the news reports pointed out the fact that today, Centoya would have been classified as a victim of sex trafficking. But in 2004, they called her a prostitute. Mm. A week later, the news package went viral and hashtag Free Centoya Brown started after Rihanna shared her story on social media. Oh, hell yeah. Several other celebrities got on board fighting for clemency for Centoya. And this included Kim Kardashian, which, you know, say what you want about her. I probably agree with a lot of it. But she has used her ridiculous platform to help the wrongfully convicted and people with unjust sentences. And I just love that. I didn't see any of this hashtag stuff. Well. When was this? You missed it. Sorry. Uh, 2017. Oh, that's why. <laughs> okay. I probably didn't even know what a hashtag was. Okay. In 2017? <laughs> no, I did Four years ago? 
You've been on Twitter longer than four years, please. Yeah, I've been on Twitter for like 10. I just – I'm surprised <laughs> I missed this. 2017, I was falling in love with Russell. So I was busy. Uh, oh. <laughs> I was busy. You were hashtag love. I was hashtag bless. Ew. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> oh, no. Take Chugy. it back. Chuggy. <laughs> and Kim Kardashian didn't stop at tweeting about it. She also called her attorneys to see what could be done about it, and this helped get the national attention that this case needed. And this law in itself was so important because it would provide an avenue of help for children across the world that were in these situations. Once her case was front and center with the public, Centoya decided that the timing was appropriate to seek the help of the governor. He was going into his last year in office, which is a great time to ask for something that might be <laughs> on the wrong side of public opinion. Yeah. So basically how this works is that once all of your state appeals are over, you can file a petition for clemency with the Board of Parole and the governor. Clemency means leniency, and it just means that the governor can overwrite your sentence. He can make your sentence lighter or even Ooh. just give you time served. But they don't do very many hearings on clemency. They filed hers in 2017, and it started with a letter from Centoya about why she thinks it's appropriate for her to be honored with clemency from the governor. The petition ended up being a giant binder, like stuffed to the brim with information on Centoya's case, including tons of letters from people in the community advocating for Centoya and saying that she would be the perfect person to be considered for clemency. This included the president of Lipscomb, where she'd gotten her degree from, saying that she had a 4.0. The mayor wrote a letter. A judge wrote a letter. I mean, she had big shots really advocating for her. Yeah. Dr. Burnett did another evaluation that was included in the petition to the governor. He said Centoya had grown up intellectually and socially and that she had learned a lot. She had a broader understanding of life, and she'd even gotten interested in the problem of sex trafficking. She was in the process of writing a term paper on that topic when he interviewed her, and she had a lot of really good ideas about how to use that knowledge outside of the prison. She accomplished all of that in prison. Like, I'm not trying to write term papers now. No! During her time at Lipscomb, she'd had a professor named Preston Shipp, who also happened to be a prosecutor. He introduced her to this idea of restorative justice, where instead of condemning and punishing, they restore balance and repair what was damaged. Instead of throwing away the criminal, they can reconcile the person who had done wrong to the person who was wronged. And this idea really spoke to her, and she felt it was exactly what we need. She was someone that now had the potential to do a lot of good in the world if she was given the option. In May of 2018, Centoya was 30 years old, and the parole board agreed to see her. Before the governor would take any action, he would want the opinion of the parole board because they're there to advise and make recommendations to the governor about pardons and commuting sentences. And the governor had already stated that he would use clemency very sparingly. The purpose was to show that Centoya had been rehabilitated and could be a useful member of society and most likely would be if she received a commuted sentence. I would love to be on a parole board. Like, if I could, you know, like, Skull and Bone <sighs> Secret too. Society. Oh. Parole board. Parole board. Mm-hmm. Want to be on a game show. You know, like, that's just, like, on my time. I know, but, like, I also think about if you're on a parole board and you, like, take a chance on somebody and then they, like, kill somebody and it's your fault. Like, I would feel like that. 
<laughs> it's your fault. <sighs> yeah, yikes. Okay. Well. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I understand why they have to be cautious because, like, they carry a big responsibility, but at the same time, you know, these are people's lives. I don't know. Mm, yeah. Once again, it was brought up that in 2004, she was considered a prostitute, even though she was only 16. And if it happened today, she would not have been considered a criminal for that. They wanted the governor to commute Centoya's sentence to second degree murder, which would make her eligible for parole. She would still have a criminal record, but she would have an opportunity to live a productive and useful life outside of the prison system. Her clemency hearing was scheduled for May 23rd, 2018. It was held at the women's prison. The defense lawyer at the hearing opened by saying, this is a story of a transformation in the life of a wasted child who has become a beautiful, intelligent, caring, educated woman who can make things better in this world. And that's why we're here. Oh, yes. I know. Centoya had a chance to speak, and this is what she said. What I did was horrible. I killed Johnny Allen and he's gone, and it stayed with me this whole time. I was locked up at 16 and that was it. I have no choice but to live a different life. I can't make up for what I did, but they've given me a chance to do so much more. Her professor at Lipscomb, Preston Ship, also spoke at her hearing. He'd been the assistant attorney general who had actually argued to keep Centoya in prison at her first appeal before he'd ever met her. Right. And he spoke about that and then spoke about how meeting her changed his opinion of her. He said she was a brilliant student and talked about how justice should be more than what crime was committed and how much time does this person get. It should be about trying to achieve the right outcome, more than about alleging rule violations. He said he was advocating for her release because he's seen what an amazing person she has become. Dang. Kathy Sinback, her public defender from 2004, mm -hmm. also spoke on her behalf. She became involved in the case again to work on her clemency, and she tried to show that Centoya was a person who could be in the community and that she deserved a chance to live a life. While Centoya had been in prison, there had been a huge sweep across the country for sentencing reform, specifically in regards to people who had committed crimes as minors. The sentencing reform said that children deserve to be reviewed, not necessarily released, but that their sentence should be looked at again after a fair number of years. We should not be throwing children away for 51 years, never to be even looked at again. Yeah, 51. Like, that is... So shocking to me. I could even get down like, okay, 30, like 51. 30 with parole, maybe. You like, right, you like, know, I don't know. 30 I still don't really years. agree with 30, but I'm like, after 30, like now we're just like 51. Like, come on. Like, yeah. I don't. She would have been what, 67 years old when yeah. she was released. So she would have spent from 16 to 67. And at that point, I mean, now you're putting a 67-year-old in the world who's never functioned, and they're like, just keep – at that point, I'm just yeah. going to stay here because I don't even know what this is. Like, yeah, people got camera phones. Like, I don't <laughs> know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. trying to do that. God, she was inside when the iPhone came out. That's that, a, yeah, that she's going to just come out. We've got, like, mini computers. Like, what right. is this, a Palm Pilot? I don't even know what they – Yeah. Anna Whaley spoke, who was a close friend of Johnny Allen and his family, and she said that Johnny has a voice and that his family has a voice. 
And she said that Centoya had done them great harm and that Johnny did not deserve to die. She said she hoped that God had transformed her life, but that Johnny's life mattered. She said that he was loved and that he's missed dearly and that this was all just a very sad story. And then it was time for the parole board to make their recommendations. And their recommendations were all over the place. They were very divided. Wow. There were two on the board who were recommending commuting the sentence from first degree to second degree murder, which is what Centoya's team wanted. It would have made her eligible for parole. Right. There were two others who thought they should lower the sentence from 51 years to 25 years, meaning she'd get parole in 2029. And two ding-dongs who thought there should be no relief and that 51 years was an appropriate sentence for a victim of (laughs) child sex trafficking. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) A bunch of ding-dongs over here. Ding-dongs. But these are just recommendations. It's all up to the governor to decide what he wants to do. Centoya's mother, Elinette, she said she was just on an emotional roller coaster. She said she tried not to allow herself to have hope, but that it still crept through. The clemency hearing gave her hope, but she knew how badly it would hurt if the governor said no. This was literally Centoya's very last chance. If this didn't work, she would be almost 70 years old before she was up for parole. A totally wasted life. Yeah, that's wild. It took the governor, Bill Haslam, eight months to reach his decision. My God, the stress of those eight months on Centoya and her team, I could not even imagine. But on January 7th, 2019, his lawyers called her lawyers and said that he wanted to meet. Centoya's lawyers showed up to the governor's office expecting just to talk to the lawyers and see what his decision was. But when they walked in, they said, hang on. Let's go get the governor. (laughs) Please hold. Bill Haslam comes out and says, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to commute her sentence to 15 years. This is January 2019. (gasps) August of 2019, it would be 15 years. He said for the next seven months, she'll move to a transition group, and then she'll be on probation for 10 years. And he said he made his decision partly because of the medical information about the development of her brain, but also because of the extraordinary steps she'd taken in prison to improve her life, even when she had no idea whether she'd ever see life outside the prison walls again. Yeah, like, 10 years probation, okay, Centoya is not even getting a speeding ticket, I'm sure of it. Right. Haslam said he felt that Centoya's case was an eye-opener to him, and he felt society would be better served with her outside of prison than inside. He said she's an example of a person whose life has been changed and is why we need to look deeply into each and every juvenile case. Finally, her lawyers were able to come and give her the good news, and she just started dancing. She said she couldn't be more excited, and it was just perfect. Everyone cried. Later, her attorney, Charles Bone, called her and put her on speakerphone at his office to give her the opportunity to thank the crowd of people in the room who had worked so hard for her all of these years. It was the culmination of 15 years of hard work, tears, anguish, and joy. Elinette said she has everything now that she needs to be successful, and how she uses it is up to her. Right. 
Later, a reporter would ask Centoya what she would say to Johnny Allen's family if she ever got the chance to speak to them. And this is what she said. His life mattered. I was recently asked if me being given a second chance, does that mean that he was in any way less of a victim? And not at all. I think his life mattered just as I matter. This is a very tragic situation all around. I think they've endured pain that most people can't imagine. Of course, I've expressed my sympathy. I've expressed my regret, my remorse, and I can't do that enough. She also said, I don't think it's fair for me to say that I'm capable of being redeemed and that I am deserving of a second chance and to say that he wasn't. That's not fair at all. Aw. While she was in prison, Centoya earned her GED, an associate's degree in liberal arts, and a bachelor's degree in professional studies in organizational leadership, and she wrote her memoir, Free Centoya. Oh, organizational leadership is so cool. I've looked at, like, master's programs in that. It's really? really? Mm-hmm. Oh. She said she understands the things she's done and that it was so necessary for her to change. She said she would not be here if not for everybody who's been there for her and that now she has a whole new family and a whole new community of people who love her, believe in her, and support her. And she feels called to share her experiences with young people that don't understand. So on August 7th, 2019, at the age of 31, after serving 15 years in prison, she walked out a free woman, though on probation for 10 years, on the condition that she does not violate any state or federal laws, holds a job, and participates in regular counseling sessions. She's now been out just over two years. She's now Centoya Brown Long, after she married her husband, Jamie Long. And she spends her time traveling with Jamie, fighting human trafficking. She's sharing the message of her experiences and what happened in her life and what it looks like to do life differently, which is exactly what the governor hoped she would do with her release. And that is the story of Centoya Brown. It's so tragic, and I wish that no one had to die in this story. I don't believe that Centoya's life would be what it is now if that wouldn't have happened because she would have continued to, I mean, prison and the police saved her. She would have kept going back to Cutthroat, who would have, I mean. She actually said when she found out that he died shot in a parking lot, more than likely she would have been with him Yeah, she would be dead. Right. And I, to- I totally agree. I think that, yeah, if she hadn't had this like, I hate to use the word wake up call because I feel so pandering and well, and it's like I don't necessarily think that like Jamie. I mean, I have a lot of feelings. He obviously was a predator. I do think people Johnny, Johnny, Jamie, Johnny, Jamie's her husband. Johnny, sorry, was the man she killed. And I'm not saying that like his life over her life that she would have been dead. Yeah, in the parking lot, in a sonic parking lot or whatever. Right. I don't think we can ever say his life. I think it is what happened. That's what yeah. that's what happened. Right. You know, we can't do anything to change that. We can't say, you know, if she had never. But because it happened, she was able to get her life mm-hmm. on track. And she, yeah, I mean. And I think that 15 years is an appropriate amount of time for what happened. I don't think that she should have been able to be acquitted of it. I don't Mm -hmm. think she would have changed her life at all if she had just been acquitted of it in the beginning. Right, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't think she would have gone to college. I don't think she would have earned her bachelor's degree or any of that. Or learned a lesson of like, I need to make changes in my life. Right. But I think 15 years, you know, I think with 10 years on probation, like, I'm fine with that. It's more than uh, a lot of domestic violence cases get. So, I mean, 15 years, that's life in prison. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As we know. All right. So I actually have an organization to shout out for this episode. And then I have people to shout out. And then MoGap has people to shout out. As a reminder, if you have an organization that you know of that's near and dear to your heart, please send it to me. We had this organization sent to us, and I thought it connected with this case. So this person sent me this information of a nonprofit called FASD Communities. It's in Wisconsin, and it is for women with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They're a nonprofit organization. They're the only group home in the U.S. that is for females with FASD. And they do some really awesome things for those people. So I will link their information in our show notes. So check them out. They seem like a really awesome organization. And thank you so much, Genevieve, for sending that to me. We also will have resources for victims of sex trafficking, human trafficking. Please, for the love of God, Can you stop sharing the stories about the white woman at Target who was convinced that the person of color was following her because they were going to sell her into human sex trafficking because that is not what that looks like? And when you share things like that, have you not seen all of these? No, because it's probably stuff on Facebook, and I refuse to be a part of that. It is on Facebook, and yeah, it's old people on Facebook resharing. That's right. I said what I said. It's not old people unless we're old. I mean, we are a little old, but it is people that I went to high school with sharing this stuff. Like, name a place, Target, Walmart, wherever. They're inside. Applebee's. <laughs> Let me fancy look. Oh, stop it. That song gets stuck in my head and I hate, I hate it. I hate that song. It's Anyways, if you know it. what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's not true. It's borderline racist. And it really takes away from helping the cause that you're trying to help. It makes it seem like we're looking for kidnappers when really it's their father walking them or mother, in this case, walking them to the neighbor's house. Like that's what sex trafficking looks like. And those are the things that you need to be spotting, not someone at Target. Nobody at Target is trying to sell you into sex slavery, okay? (laughs) I'm uh, stepping off my soapbox. Yeah, like every (laughs) – it's like a segment (laughs) soapbox. I would like to award my peep of the week. Peep of the week! The first one it's going to, which I mean, poke my eyeballs out right now. Peep of the week, Kim Kardashian. You go, girl. I know nothing about you or your family. I don't even know your sister's names. I don't know what makeup line you sell. I don't know who you're married to, but. I know all of that information. (laughs) The important part is my peep of the week. I feel it's appropriate the first one goes to Kim Kardashian. I cannot put that on social media. I need you to pick somebody else. I can't. I know. It's terrible. (laughs) But she started this whole like – or not she started, but she really got some movement. She made a couple phone calls. I'm not saying she didn't do a great job. 
But come on, all these lawyers, everybody that was like advocating for her, the the governor, the governor that commuted her sentence. We're we're giving it to Kim Kardashian. <laughs> this is the great thing. You don't do anything in Canva, so I have final say. I'm giving it to the governor. <laughs> Peep of the creep to Bill you can, Haslam. You can do one. I don't know the... anything about his politics. If he's terrible, let me know before I post this. Yeah, Instagram. maybe don't do that. We at least know. <laughs> It's like a slideshow. It's like Kristen's peep of the week. <laughs> Those little like I already Instagram know. <laughs> oh, Lord. The first peep of the week is being um, reported here and will not appear on Instagram. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But we have peeps of the week. Are you ready to shout out these peeps and creeps of the week? Ooh. Ooh, look at all these peeps we've shouted out. I know. Wait, all I right. kind of want to try this first one. All right. Because I want to try the Cardi B voice. I feel like I can make this sound because, you know, I make eagle sounds. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is like not a bird sound, but I'm going to try. So, okay. peeps and creeps of the week. First one up. Cindy Lincoln Ho. No, that was not it. Hold on. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> I can't do it. I... <sighs> You know Ew. the sound? Do you know the sound? Cindy knows the sound. Not really. You know, the music is my like pop <laughs> culture, like <laughs> I know. That's where that's where I come in. Don't know it. All right. Uh big thank you to Misty Wallace. And Emma C. Isn't that a Spice Girl? Emma C. There's a Spice Girl named Emma and a Spice Girl named Mel. Oh, I'm thinking of Mel B C. and Mel C. So sorry. Emma C. Big thanks to Kale who wanted Mogab to give the shout out. Well, awkward because that's Kate. And Kate, you – It is not Kale. What is – I need my cheaters. <laughs> <laughs> I need my cheaters. <laughs> Kate, you do get major shouts. I need to zoom in on this. Mm-hmm. My God. Look, that says Kate, a perfectly normal name. <laughs> <laughs> Kale. <laughs> I like it because they are the most like – non-country person and you're like with a thick accent kale (laughs) (laughs) kate you go kate thanks kate all right the next person wants to see if you can pronounce their name correctly oh (laughs) michelle barquare come on what is my first rodeo oh she's on my team i don't know how to pronounce her name good job major shouts to nikki rose (gasps) Marley's mommy, such a good boy. Such a good oh. boy. Oh, and last one. I'm doing this one. I stole it from you. Okay. Sister. Jessica Amanda Cavanella. Yay. What a throwback, sis. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of you. If you would like your own personal shout out, tell them how they can get a shout out, Mogab. You must know this. <gasps> well, <laughs> you can get a shout out. Oh, yes. Well, by signing up and paying $5, but they've already done that if they're hearing this episode. No, no they're not. The this regular, is not a bonus this episode. <laughs> we don't Hi, do shout outs on the bonus It's episodes. my first day of work here. Wait, did I ever tell you at the Waffle House when I would mess up or something would happen, I would just say, like, I'm so sorry, it's my first day. And I did that like <laughs> five years in and people would be like, You've waited on us like seven other times. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I used to do that. I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's my first day I'm in training. And they were like, no, we've been coming here for years. <laughs> we know you. So 
Yes. You pay $5. You sign up for the Patreon. That's what you do. And you want to sign up for the Patreon because we have some great stuff coming for you. I keep telling Kristen all my ideas. I got some good mini creeps. Got some good bonus episodes. Excited about those mini creeps. Yeah, people, you're going to want to sign up before Christmas, okay? You're going to want to sign up before Christmas. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. Yes. All right. Outro. Just do all the things you've heard us say already before, okay? Like, subscribe, leave a comment, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell people that you don't even really know that well. We don't care. What Moga meant to say so politely was thank you so much for listening to this episode. We so appreciate you so much. And also, we would love to hear from all of you. Find us on social media. We're in all the places. And you can email us at creeperspod at gmail.com. Hey, stop it. You're embarrassing me. And be sure to subscribe to True Crime (laughs) Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Mogav another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps.